October 26, I was sent to cover Shibuya Halloween celebrations and uh, was anticipating that it would be something akin to 2018's escapades in which a car ended up upturned. Despite the costume party theme, the last thing I expected to see was a person wearing a full Winnie the Pooh suit with a smaller version tucked under their arm, surrounded by a rather large group of people wearing Xi Jinping masks and bearing a banner with the slogan, hashtag stand with the poo. And this was when I first met Shinny the Pooh and first became aware that Japan had its very own Hong Kong protest movement. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive. I'm Oscar Boyd. Today on the show, Hong Kong protesters in Japan and why the country should care. So we're now entering our sixth month of the Hong Kong protests. That's Julia Bergen, a researcher for the Little Red podcast, a podcast all about China. She's also written an excellent long read for The Guardian on China's disinformation tactics around the world. Uh, these trace back to the June 9 protest, where a million Hong Kongers turned out on the street to protest amendments to an extradition bill, which would allow Hong Kongers to be extradited to mainland China. And we've seen a continuing escalation of violence, in particular in the last, uh, in the last month, from both sides. Julia, what are the demands of the protesters in Hong Kong? The silence ended with a now familiar chant. Liberate Hong Kong, revolution of our time. So the common thread that has continued throughout these protests has been these five demands, the first of which was the retraction of the extradition bill. Uh, and this one has actually been satisfied. This is the only one that's been satisfied. Uh, the other four include an independent inquiry into police brutality and police abuse of power. Uh, the police have become increasingly more aggressive in their methods towards protesters. Um, it sparked international outcry. The third thing that they want to see is the retraction of the definition of a riot movement, which they see as totally undermining the democracy protests that they are trying to pursue. The fourth thing is the removal of charges on protesters themselves. Uh, the final demand is universal suffrage, uh, which Hong Kongers have been fighting for for a long time. They feel that their government and their judiciary has become a puppet of Beijing. And this has really been put on show just in the past couple of days when Beijing came out publicly and condemned Hong Kong's high court decision that ruled the face mask ban, which was earlier imposed, was unconstitutional. And the Chinese government publicly said that it was the only one capable of ruling any decision in Hong Kong as constitutional or not. So these are their five demands that are definitely pushing the protest. But the other side of the protest is it's very much responsive to what's happening on the ground. And you're seeing them targeting different parts of Hong Kong society, depending on what their objectives are. So they've stormed the parliament, they've stormed malls, they've held up the airport. And the 
battle now is being waged on university campuses as this sort of intellectual hub of information and freedom. Good evening. In Hong Kong, hundreds of activists remain under siege inside the Polytechnic University, where there's been more violence today as police... So this is a situation which is developing incredibly rapidly. We've seen a very large escalation of protests this week, in particular with the Polytechnic University in Hong Kong, basically becoming a siege ground between protesters and police. What is the latest going on in Hong Kong at the moment? Yeah, that's right. And I mean, by the time we go to air, things will probably have changed even more. But at the moment, Hong Kong is quite literally resembling stunt scenes from an action thriller. Uh, we're seeing students hanging off the side of bridges and this image made it to the Japan Times front page this morning. We've got protesters making daring escapes at Polytechnic University, as you mentioned, and they were seen running across the bridge where a moving motorcycle squadron picked them up and drove them out. Although the movement has been marked by escalating violence on both parts, with protesters resorting to throwing bricks, Molotov cocktails and even bow and arrow the attention very much is on the increasingly violent tactics of police. So they've moved to using live ammunition, sonic and water cannon, rubber bullets, sponge grenade and the ever-present tear gas. More chilling, however, is the way in which Hong Kong police have been seen to ditch all legal convention in the way that they're policing the protests. So indiscriminate arrest has become a preferred means of crowd control and this has even included instances where they've stormed a public female toilet and arrested all those inside. They've hidden inside ambulances to arrest the wounded as they come in off the street and according to Hong Kong police, the total arrest number has now reached 4,491. And most shocking is that these are in the age range of 11 to 83 years old. So we very much have a city that's on edge and a population that has absolutely no idea how things are going to pan out. Let's move on from Hong Kong itself to Japan. Until you told me about this topic and the Zinni the Pooh story on Halloween that you saw, I didn't actually realise there was any kind of protest movement here. Um, so what have been the major events in recent days? Well, yes, I was surprised as well. It was the last thing that I was expecting to see. So we've had three standouts. There was Shibuya, as I mentioned, which was very much a creative show. Uh, that was on October 26 and October 31. Then following that was Yoyogi Koen, Yoyogi Park, uh, on November the 2nd, which was a big picnic of about 50 to 60 people. And the final and largest scale protest that was staged was the Hibiyu Koen March, uh, which was a formal protest and mobilised around 1,200 people. And they marched from the park to the foreign ministry to deliver a letter to the government demanding for uh, the government to take a much more assertive stand on what's happening in Hong Kong. Tell me about some of the people that you've uh, met through these protests and talked to. How come you've all come here today? Is it to protest for Hong Kong or uh, to come for Halloween itself? I think it's both. Mm -hmm. Like it's a great chance for us to play with this kind of thing, like with uh, seat masks. And of course, like I'm wearing a full pool gear. <laughs> so the three that I've been in constant contact yeah, with so, um, go by the protest names of Kay, Weiwei and Lipig. So you'll find in Hong Kong as well, it's really, really common to have a protest name. Uh, it's just a mechanism for safety. Uh, the authorities are really tapped into everything. So the three of them have been living in Japan for a long time. They're all from Hong Kong, but 
uh, Japan is very much their home. Uh, Lipig and Weiwei are both young professionals and Kay is a university student in Japan. All three of these Hong Kongers are part of a, a small but very strong Hong Kong community based in Japan uh, and their life really heavily revolves around what's happening in Hong Kong. Why are these three Kay, Weiwei and Lipig protesting in particular? Well, ultimately it comes down to the fact that they can't be there. So they, all three of them expressed to me the desire to return home, to be on the front line, to be assisting the Hong Kong people in this fight for democracy, but they can't. And so what they've had to come to terms with is how they can be of use overseas. And there's a number of different ways in which they can, the most pertinent of which is in information. So they feel that this is as much a war on information as it is a physical assault to the Hong Kong people. And so that's what they're doing. They want to make the Japanese aware of China's capabilities and they feel that Hong Kong is the starkest example of that. There's a saying that like the we know right to history, right? Yes. So like like if we lost here, then a lot of truth will be covered by the winner. Yes. So it's like Tiananmen Square. Weiwei put it in terms to me that the saying goes that the winner will write history. If we lose here, then a lot of truth will be covered by the winner. It's like Tiananmen Square. So in that sense, he's trying to convey the fact that information is constantly lost, erased, changed, covered up and concealed. And what they're trying to do is really relay the real information of what's happening in Hong Kong and what China is doing because they see this international response as being part and parcel to the solution. To the point that they actually made the case that every time a foreign country stands up and supports Hong Kong, the protest movement is very much energised. And more generally, what are the goals of the Hong Kong protesters based in Japan? It seems like in Japan, um, there is nothing really like... um, like the Japanese government, we cannot see anything that they are doing. So the objectives are sort of twofold. So, so the first side is that they're trying to bring elements of the Hong Kong protests to Japan. And the flip side is that they're trying to integrate parts of Japanese culture into the way that they protest to make it relevant to Japanese society. So they are targeting different parts of the Japanese government and Japanese civil society to try and move a response. So we have uh, the government where they... They want an outright response from. They want a statement. Then there's the education of the Japanese people who really, by and large, don't have a lot of interest or knowledge in what is happening in Hong Kong and foreign policy more generally. And this became really apparent at Shibuya Halloween where very few people were able to recognise the Xi Jinping mask that the protesters were wearing, but the Winnie the Pooh very much resonated. And the third part of what they're doing is to be a support mechanism for both the Hong Kong community in Japan and for the Hong Kong community back in Hong Kong. So they're tailoring their protests and the way in which they do this, depending on the target audience. So what examples have there been of these protesters tailoring their movement in Japan to fit in with society? The best example is Shibuya Halloween. This is one of Japan's greatest celebrations. People are dressing up left, right and centre. It's very much a fantasy world on show. And it's the last place that you would expect to see a pro-democracy movement being staged. But when you actually get down to it, it's not so far removed from the styles of the Hong Kong movement itself. So in Hong Kong, there's been a huge 
gravitation towards creative protest uh, and, you know, art, innovative tactics, this concept of be water very much relies on this creativity. Interestingly, as part of this, we've even seen Japanese anime uh, playing a huge part in inspiring protest tactics. Like what? Well, for instance, the 1995 sci-fi anime classic Neon Genesis Evangelion which is about a 14-year-old introvert who is unwillingly thrown into the front lines of brutal battles against relentless enemies, uh, has very much understandably resonated with Hong Kong protesters. So they've used the style, the aesthetic in all different types of protest forums, both online and at the front line. So by seeing these demonstrations on the streets of Shibuya, these protests have come full circle back to Japan. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the role of art for these Hong Kongers based abroad is is really important. It's the best way in which they can actually feed back into the Hong Kong movement itself. So Weiwei said to me that he finds it very difficult to ask Japanese people for help, not because they're not supportive or they're not understanding, but because he doesn't actually know how to articulate it. The problem, he said, is is too complicated to even know where to start. So for him, doing artistic and activist-based collaborations with Japanese people is the best way to actually engage Japanese and also feedback effectively into Hong Kong. And have any of the other Japan-based protests also mirrored Hong Kong tactics and style of protest? Yogi Park on November the 2nd was an equally good example of this. This was about 50, 60 people uh, having a picnic in the park. And the first thing that stood out to me, which was I couldn't find the protesters. I couldn't find the protest. Where in Hong Kong, you'd be hard done to go anywhere without being aware that a protest was underway. But the way in which they had organised this had come about in a similar way to the way in which a Hong Kong-based protest had been organised. Back in June 12, right at the beginning of the protests, um, Hong Kong people had attempted to host a protest in the park opposite the Legislative Council and they were denied uh, all formal applications. So what they decided to do was to host a mass individual picnic. Tens of thousands of people all having a picnic at once. Yeah, that's right. So... Formally, it's not a protest, but the scale of which it is makes it one. So the Japan-based Hong Kong protesters have done a similar thing. So in the same way, their applications for a formal protest were denied by Japanese authorities. So they decided to do what the Hong Kong people have done and host a picnic in the very busy and very popular Yoyogi Park. This for them was a really strong way of communicating what they're doing, sparking interest from the Japanese population, but doing it in a very subtle way. And what about the larger scale demonstration, the 1,200 people who marched from Hibiya Cohen to the foreign ministry? Yeah, so this was a formal protest. This was approved and this was very much targeting the Japanese government. So the tactics were a bit different. They were less an appeal to Japanese culture and more a traditional approach to protest. So they were marching, they were chanting, Uh, and unfortunately for them, the day of the event was the day after Typhoon Hagibis. So what could have been a really good opportunity to get a lot of media attention fell short because all eyes and ears were on the typhoon cleanup. You've talked about three 
protests. A very eye-catching one at Shibuya Halloween. A very small-scale picnic, 50 to 60 people in a park that's already known for picnics. And one march of 1,200 people, which is a lot for Japan, but in terms of the numbers who are turning out on the streets in Hong Kong, relatively small even then. Um, are these protests finding much traction? Are they getting much response from anyone? Not really. There's been no formal response from the government, uh, which has been their primary objective. Uh, there's been small amounts of media coverage, but to be perfectly honest, the most successful exposure they've had has been during Halloween. And they've got quite a strong following under the hashtag of Stand with the Pooh. So where did this Jenny the Pooh, Winnie the Pooh thing come from? To see, because you know, in China, uh, basically Winnie the Pooh is famous. So it's actually evolved from a meme that compares Chinese President Xi Jinping to Winnie the Pooh. So he deemed this was incredibly unfavourable to him and so banned Winnie the Pooh in China. And uh, Li Pig explained to me that if you Google it, all that comes up is 404. Any picture of Winnie the Pooh, all that comes up in China is a 404, 404 like error message. Error, 404. So they have basically latched on to this concept of the... Uh, forbidden Winnie the Pooh and decided to dress themselves up in this. And then the Xi Jinping mask idea actually was born out of an Indian school who welcomed Xi Jinping uh, on an official visit and all of the students were seen wearing Xi Jinping masks. So they thought this was therefore very fitting to team the two together and come up with this movement and hashtag Stand with the Pooh. Have the protesters received much support from the general public in Japan? There is support, but it's been relatively low. I was talking to a Japanese university student at Yoyogi Park and what he said to me is that the level of engagement of Japanese people with domestic politics, let alone foreign politics, is very, very low. He wasn't surprised to hear that so few Japanese people were even able to recognise Xi Jinping. And for him, what the Hong Kong protesters were doing in trying to generate a presence was a really effective way of going about it. Weiwei said this to me, that this is the same as their approach towards government. Even though they have very little voice, even though they're learning on the go, their idea is to make a presence. Their idea is to start having people recognise who they are so that even if they don't actually achieve any outcomes, they've got a voice, they've got, a re they've got recognition in community. But there is one Japanese woman who's actually done a lot for the protests. Her name is Suzuko Hirano and she has been organising weekly events. And Weiwei said to me that he's been doing a lot of collaboration with her. They're also trying to engage non-profit organisations uh, to see what action they can pursue there. They've also been trying to make connections with people who have access to government to try and sort of speed up the process of generating a government response. These protests have been quite public. If you've got a march going from Hibiya Cohen all the way to the foreign ministry, if you're doing protests in Shibuya, obviously you are going to get the attention of a fair number of people. Have they met any resistance in their protests? 
Yeah, they actually have. So it's really interesting. They've met resistance in a couple of different ways. The more physical form of that uh, actually took place at Shibuya Halloween, not on the 26th but on the actual 31st when they were protesting there. So they were doing as they did on the 26th, walking through with the crowds of people dressed up in their Winnie the Pooh outfits with Xi Jinping masks and they were approached by a pro-Beijing person who came up to them and started yelling at them, are you from Hong Kong, are you from Hong Kong, what are you doing here, one China, one China. And the protesters told me that they didn't respond to that and that the pro-Beijing person then proceeded to uh, rip off one of their masks. And this is this is on Facebook. This is a video that's been going, circulating on Twitter. The interesting thing is that the Japanese police actually stepped in. It was a plainclothes police officer had been trailing them and actually stepped in and immediately pulled them off. They told me of another a similar experience back in August at Chiyoda when they were staging a protest there where a carload of Chinese people uh, drove past singing the national anthem and actually attempted to run them over. So again, the police intervened, ran in and stopped the car. Um, so what they said to me was that they pay their taxes to the right people, meaning that they've very much got the support of the Japanese police, perhaps not in a, you know, the objectives of the movement sense, but in terms of basic law and order and protection, mm. they're looked after by Japanese society. Which is quite different to the police response in Hong Kong. Very different to the police response in Hong Kong. So apart from physical violence, have they uh, faced any other forms of resistance? Yeah, so Kay, who's a university student here in Tokyo, was telling me of a situation in which what had happened was the university had sort of mimicked the Lenin Wall and the Lenin Wall is the wall in Hong Kong that became popularised during 2014's Umbrella Movement as a site for freedom of expression. Yeah, that's right. And the Lenin Wall that has been replicated at Kay's university uh, basically functions as a small site of protest, but also to actually put up survey results of what is happening in Hong Kong. So it's information-based. And she'd been contributing to that. Um, because she saw it as, you know, a nice way to start to educate her classmates of what's going on. Her Chinese classmates at the university cottoned onto the wall and then proceeded to rip it down and complain to the professor of Chinese studies who uh, actually issued an apology on their behalf. So she was quite outraged with that because it was a interference of, of free information and free knowledge. And if they are meeting resistance then, are the protesters here worried for their security at all yeah definitely they're worried about their, their identity being exposed and revealed to the chinese embassy here so the pig actually told me that uh, the embassy in japan is attempting to mobilize students and encourage them to report back to it on what hong kong students and hong kong activists are doing in japan so yeah there is a a lot of fear every day about their identity being uh, forfeited and she, she actually reported instances where she had people taking photos of her. And this is in Japan as well. So it's not all that far removed from what's happening in Hong Kong. That is exactly why they're using protest names, not real names. That's why they're wearing masks. And that's also why when I'm talking to them and communicating with them on their Facebook, none of their profile pictures reveals anything about them. In fact, Kay's is black. It's a black picture.
how do the people you've talked to who are protesting Hong Kong feel about being in Japan and being separated from their home? They don't feel good about it at all. They don't want to be here. They want to be back in Hong Kong. They want to be on the front line helping fight for democracy. So they said to me that every day they feel sad. They see the news on repeat. They're constantly being fed new stories of violence, of injustice. Lipig went to Polytechnic University herself, so it's even more distressing to see the university where she learned all about the world going up in flames. But as they said to me, there is a place for them in Japan and they have to continue to convince themselves that there is a role for them in Japan. Uh, and Lipig, for instance, is actually broadcasting back into Hong Kong. So what she does is, as the rest of the Hong Kong people living in Japan do, she's watching the news on repeat every evening. And this is a pretty emotional experience and makes them feel very helpless and hopeless. So what she's doing is she's watching this and then she actually broadcasts back into Hong Kong. Radio, we talk about like what's happening to broadcast it to the front line so that they will know uh, they will like they can analyze like oh, where is the um, better way to escape. Or they have a number of radio stations and channels in which the protesters on the front line can listen to, and the purpose of these is to basically be their eyes and their ears. So they're meant to tell they tell the protesters which ways they can escape, where is safe, what's ahead of them, what's behind them, uh, and although people in Hong Kong have access to this same live footage that Lipig does in. Japan. The beauty of her doing it from here is that she can't be traced by police back in Hong Kong. So it's safer for the protesters there. It's a, it enables her to have an active position here. Mm, of course, like we need a lot of cooperation, like of people in Hong Kong. So um, there are some uh, telegram channels, and also there are um, radios in. Hong so she's Kong, relying on which, um, news footage, but also information from people on the front line. So she's kind of acting as a middleman. Uh, they feed her information, she feeds it back. Um, and she's doing this at the moment every night because there is so much happening. This is the way in which she can feel that she is with her fellow comrades on the front line. And have the protesters got any immediate plans for more demonstrations to take place in Japan? In the near distant future, no. There's a district council election in Hong Kong on the 24th of November, so a lot of Japan-based Hong Kongers are returning to vote. Uh, when I spoke with Lipig and Weiwei, they said that that would mean that not many participants would be there if they organised something. So they're sort of taking this opportunity to have a bit of a rain check on where they can influence uh, Japan, where they can actually make an effective contribution to the movement going forward. And why should Japan care about the Hong Kong protests? Well, I mean, at a, a government level, uh, geopolitically, Hong Kong going under leads to an unstable region. An unstable region is not good for anyone, in particular Japan. Uh, it also means a more confident and more assertive China, if China successfully manages to quieten Hong Kong. And that's not good for the region either. 
In an economic sense, uh, according to the Japanese government, Hong Kong is Japan's eighth largest trading partner and 2017 data shows that it accounts for 4.6% of Japan's export market. So this is at a value of about $32.1 billion. Japan is not the only country who's going to be affected and we're already seeing that uh, in the US and the UK. So the UK have threatened sanctions on Hong Kong and this morning the US passed the Human Rights and Democracy Act, which would basically mean that Annually, Hong Kong would have to report back to the US to establish whether or not it is still a separate entity to China. And if it's not, then it doesn't get preferential trading status. If it is, then it does. So that's quite a big and bold move from the US as well. Countries are beginning to move on Hong Kong in this sort of more economic and geopolitical sense. Uh, so I guess that I think there is an expectation that Japan, uh, as a leading middle power, in the Asia-Pacific region will do that. And why do the protesters believe that Japan should care about Hong Kong? So there's that economic and geopolitical argument, but from the protesters that I've spoken to, the intention is very much to convey the information argument and to show how China is mobilising information systems around the world, trying to change information, trying to infiltrate information, trying to influence information. We've seen that happen very much in Australia, uh, where government media have all been sort of subsumed and at the mercy of a lot of Chinese influence operations. And there is a lot of talk that Japan will be next, if not so already happening. So, so China itself has shown a great amount of interest in Japan and there is an expectation that these types of influence operations would certainly start to become more frequent. And so what the protesters want is for the Japanese people and the Japanese government to understand China's capabilities. So they want them to be able to learn what China is, what it can do, and for them Hong Kong is the starkest example of how Beijing abuses its power. Hong Kong is centre stage right now, but the rest of the world is by no means immune from an increasingly assertive China. Well, thank you, Julia, for taking the time to talk with us today. Pleasure to be here, Oscar. That was Julia Bergen, a researcher on the Little Red podcast. They've been reporting from the ground in Hong Kong since the start of the protests. You've been listening to Deep Dive with me, Oscar Boyd. You can find more episodes just like this one on all major podcasting services, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find us on Twitter at Japan Deep Dive. You can tweet me at OMH Boyd. Thanks as always for listening in. And until next time, Podskalisamas.